Welcome back to Writers on Writing. I'm your host, Marie Stone. My guest today is the award-winning and best-selling author, Kristen Hanna, who has authored more than 20 novels, including the international blockbuster, The Nightingale, which won the coveted People's Choice Award for Best Fiction and was a selection of the Reese Witherspoon Book Club in 2023 and named a Best Book of the Year by, you know, pretty much everyone. In 2018, The Great Alone became an instant New York Times number one bestseller. Kristen joined me on the show for that novel almost exactly six years ago now. You can find that interview up and available in our archives. The Four Winds was published in February of 2021 and immediately hit number one on the New York Times, Wall Street Journal, USA Today, and indie bookstores bestseller lists. All of these mentioned books were also named Goodreads Best Historical Fiction. Her latest is The Women. Out February 6th, it shares the largely untold tales of women in the Vietnam War, where they served in the nursing corps, witnessing the trauma of war and returning home to a divided country that, you know, not only didn't appreciate their efforts, but largely sometimes didn't even believe that they were there. So we're recording this interview on January 18th, and just yesterday, Warner Brothers announced they were preemptively acquiring the film rights to The Women, even before it's released. The Women will join Kristen's other books already in production. The Nightingale is currently in production in TriStar with Dakota and Elle Fanning set to star. TriStar has also optioned The Great Alone and its development. Firefly Lane, her novel about two best friends, was the number one Netflix series around the world in the week it came out. And today we will chat about how everything old is new again in our nation, how this book resonates in today's world. We'll also talk about how to write trauma and war and creating that delicate balance of relaying an experience without overwhelming the reader. We'll chat about choosing your point of view character, writing in first versus third person, what goes into researching a book like this, how to bring historical time periods back to life, and much more. Kristen Hanna, welcome. Hi, thank you. Boy, you're going to make me work today, huh? I have to (laughs) really put on my thinking cap here. That sounds fun. Well, we'll we'll take it in a very relaxed way, I promise. So it won't be it won't be overwhelming. So I think I shared this on the show before, maybe when we talked last time and and definitely when Tim O'Brien was a guest on the show. But my dad was drafted in Vietnam in 1967. And so the war and its aftermath loomed so large over my whole childhood, as I, I know it did for a lot of people in my generation, you know, born to those PTSD households and the, and the shadow of war, not to mention those men and women who experienced it personally. So this subject is so close to my heart, as I'm sure it is to a lot of us. So thank you. Thank you for writing this. Oh, thank you for saying that. Like you, I grew up in the shadow of it. I, I'm, I, I think, older than you. So I was a child during the Vietnam era. But it was, it cast such a huge shadow over everything. And, you know, those were the days where even as a kid, we were watching one of the three news channels at night. And it was just the war images and talk of the war. And it made a really big impact on me as a child. And I've I've carried that with me all these years, just waiting for the moment to write this book. Yeah, you had mentioned at some point that you felt like you needed some time before you were ready to write this. And and I was wondering, you know, before we dive into the book, if you could talk a little bit about that, about how you felt like you were ready to take on this project. Well, like I said, it's it's something that's been with me um, a long, long time. My best girlfriend in elementary school, her father 
uh, went to Vietnam and was shot down and missing in action. And so I put on his uh, POW bracelet, you know, back in the day and and wore it for years and years and years, which meant that like every day I was I was looking at this man's name and being reminded of his loss and his family's loss. And then seeing how the vets were treated when they came home, which was um, even to a child, sort of remarkably damaging. And so I always wanted to come back to this. And I think I first pitched the book to an editor in 1997. And uh, she just basically said, you're you're not ready. You're not old enough. You know, you haven't lived enough and you haven't written enough to to be ready to tackle a subject like this. And of course, as you know, that was definitely in the era where where the the message was, we don't want to talk about Vietnam. We don't want to read about Vietnam. We don't want to hear about it. So I always knew that whenever I took on this subject, it ran the risk of being controversial and and sort of unwanted. But it wasn't really until 2020 and the the COVID lockdown that it all sort of came together for me because I was, of course, watching, as we all were, the bitter divisiveness that was going on in America, you know, the anger over the choices that, that people were making and just the loudness of it all. And at the same time, you know, we were watching our doctors and nurses being overwhelmed trying to care for people and being, um, you know, I thought less supported than I felt that they should be. And so that's when this whole book sort of came together. In that moment, I went, oh, I'm going to write about the women, the nurses. And it all felt just very relevant again. It felt like this was a story whose time had come. And I was trapped in my house, you know, on a small island with nowhere to go and nothing to do. And so it was a perfect time to take on the Herculean task to me of researching and writing this novel. Yeah. And you're no stranger to war stories. I was wondering a little bit about how it was that experience of writing about World War II versus writing about Vietnam, because they're, they're such different wars and kind of the comparison contrast of, of tackling those two different wars. Well, I also tackled them very differently, you know, in the sense that in the Nightingale and World War II, these were women who were responding to their country being at war. One was on the home front and one was like a spy kind of. Whereas, you know, with this one, I really took on essentially combat. And so that was a very new thing for me to take on the idea of what these women were experiencing in these hospitals. And it was important for me to really dive into what it was actually like, even though I knew it was going to be difficult to read and difficult to write. But I felt that if I was going to make the argument in the second half of the book that my heroine Frankie was suffering from undiagnosed PTSD, the reader had to understand what she had been through, what she had seen, and the trauma it had caused her. And you had to do with what I think is what I do in all my books, which is put you in someone's shoes and say, how would you feel in this moment? And that really is um, a function, you know, since this is writers on writing, it's really a function of, of sensory writing 
and world building. And you put those two things together. And that's how I think you put your reader in the shoes of your character. So I should let you, I kind of introduced it, but I don't know if I did a great job. I should I should let you take us into Frankie's world a little bit better, and then that'll sort of set the stage for a, a bunch of questions. Uh, okay. So again, this is my story about the Vietnam era and the vets who fought, who went to war, and what it was like when they came home. And so I really, uh, I center on a young woman who is very representative of the young women who did in fact volunteer to serve in Vietnam. She was 21 years old, um, a brand new nurse with very little actual nursing training. And she goes to war basically in 1965 on this wave of patriotism because she has grown up in a military proud uh, family that talked a lot about, you know, the family's World War II and World War I service. And so she really expects to, to fulfill her family's patriotism by going to war. And of course, what she finds is that war is, you know, hell, war is a difficult thing. And she's unprepared, both in nursing training and emotionally to, to deal with everything that's thrown at her. But over the course of her tours of duty, she definitely becomes this amazing combat nurse. She makes friendships that will last a lifetime. She even falls in love. But then it is time to come home. And so, you know, here's this woman who leaves as a patriot and realizes when she comes home that that she and her other vets, uh, fellow vets, are now pariahs, you know, the they're they're treated poorly they're looked down upon they are expected to not talk about their service to be ashamed of it and to basically disappear into the landscape and because of what we now know is ptsd frankie my heroine along with a lot of other vets just had a very very difficult time doing what was expected of them and that is really the arc of this story is Frankie sort of losing herself and then finding herself and then finding her voice. One of the things that I so appreciated about this, because there are so many resonant themes with what we're living through today with our divided country, but it also showed how far we'd come. And I often forget that. It's easy to yeah. forget that we've come a long way and we now, you know, we now understand what PTSD is. We now understand addiction much better all of these advancements for women, sometimes I feel like we're losing ground, which we are, but comparatively, we're doing better than we were. Well, and, and one of the things I liked in, in writing it as well was, you know, I often feel that we don't learn from history because we keep seeing history repeating itself. And, and that can be very depressing because you think we've, we should have learned this, you know, before. But I do actually believe that with regard to this issue of how we treat returning vets, I honestly don't believe that that this country would ever make that mistake again. And, you know, I think there is now a real sense of regardless of what you think about the war, you embrace and you thank the 
the service people for their service. Right. Tell me a little bit about how much you knew. I guess that this is sort of getting into research and, and finding. I think this this book was based on a real a real woman. So I'm I'm a little bit curious about finding your door into the story in a in a more concrete sense. You kind of knew that you were going to tell the story of what it was like to serve as a nurse in Vietnam and then when she came home, what she when she got back. But finding the right vehicle to tell that story, tell me a little bit about finding how to do that. Yeah. Well, the great thing about this story was there are several just absolutely first-rate nurses' memoirs that were written by nurses who served in Vietnam and, and their stories. And these memoirs tend to be about both their service in the war and their experiences coming home. And what I found was, you know, there was so much in common with all of these stories. They tended to be young. They tended to be inexperienced. They tended to come from families whose previous war service had been looked upon very favorably. And they went over with, I think, a very patriotic sense, a lot of them. And so there were so many commonalities that it was very easy to create a nurse who was not really based on any one of them entirely, but very much sort of an archetypical story of the women, you know, who went over there. And after I finished, so I, I, the way I do it is I tend to do all of my research up front and then I figure out what my story is and then I write my story. And then, and that's the point when I then start looking around for, okay, I need some help. I need to find out if the, the way that I've taken the facts and put them through the sieve of my imagination is accurate or feels accurate at any rate. So that was when I sort of went out in search of a female nurse who had been in Vietnam who could read my story and help me decide what was real, what wasn't, where I had gone off the rails and, and um, what I needed more of. And I was very lucky to have found a woman named Diane Carlson Evans who wrote a book called Healing Wounds, which is a remarkable memoir about her service. And, you know, she had served in Vietnam. And then upon coming home, she spent decade fighting to create the Women's Vietnam Memorial. And that was sort of how she dealt with the emotions that she brought home. And she was just an amazing uh, a resource and inspiration. Just to back up and kind of unpack how you do the research for the book. So you understand the story and all of the story beats before you sit down to write it as sort of a little outline, I assume, or no? That is, in a perfect world, that is absolutely true. And in my head, it is always true. What actually tends to happen, in fact, is... I create essentially more character than any one character can have. And I have more story than can actually fit into a reasonably sized novel. And so the way it actually works is I write a hundred pages and then I give it to a girlfriend of mine who we've been critiquing, you know, for decades now. 
and she'll tell me what's working and what isn't working. And I will essentially throw away everything that isn't working and then start over again and rewrite what is working. And I do that about every hundred pages until Oof. I get to the end. When I think about the shape of this book, and I always like to to talk about the shape of novels because I think it, it's helpful for writers to kind of visualize the structure of books. And a, a lot of books really deviate from some typical structures. And this was really kind of a diptych of during war, after war. Right. And um, I was wondering if you always knew kind of where you were going to land in the end and those big, you know, there's some really big plot point yeah. bombs that go off in this book, not to mix metaphors. And I, I was wondering at what point do you kind of let yourself know those as a writer or do they come upon you and surprise you yourself? You know, the answer to that with me is definitely surprise. But what happens is I intend to write a certain story. And in fact, this story, when I when I wrote it the first time, it was very much a love story. It started 10 years before the book currently starts and, and went another 10 years beyond. And it was a love story between two people who were separated and then brought together by the Vietnam War. I mean, I worked on that particular book for probably two and a half years. And then I sent it into my editor at last when I thought it was perfect or, you know, close. And uh, and her comment was the Vietnam War stuff is flawless and the second half is kind of boring. Mm -hmm. And so that's when I had I, I ditched the whole structure of the book and cut it down and streamlined it. And that's when a lot of my big plot twists came because I changed I changed it into this book was only the arc of Frankie's growth. That's it. And so I cut and pared everything that didn't fit in with what I had to say about being a woman coming home from war, uh, being traumatized and being forgotten. There's so many amazing sensory details about Vietnam in the book. And I was wondering if you just spent a ton of time with like the Ken Burns documentary or <laughs> online Googling pictures, or if you actually went, you know, over because I mean, you, yeah. you really got the sense that you were there. Well, thank you. I would have loved to have gone, but it was COVID. So I really had to imagine a lot of this. I mean, fortunately, there's a lot of great writing about not just Vietnam during the war, but Vietnam in general. I also lived for 10 years in a tropical rainforest. So I knew a lot about like the various seasons and the mud and the rodents and everything that comes out in that kind of thing. But primarily, I would say it was, you know, the nurse's memoir was and what they remembered. And then it's my job to sort of flesh that out and make it feel urgent and real. Yeah. So let's unpack some of the writing about the hard parts, uh, the trauma, what these nurses saw. I was given feedback on a story one time that was something I was writing, a little genocide goes a long way. <laughs> and I thought. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Yeah. And here, I mean, you have to convey what she went through and you have to get the PTSD across. It can get relentless, right? And mm -hmm. and you were able to break that up in a variety of, of really elegant writerly ways. But tell me a little bit about, because you just have to keep revisiting the same material to get it through yeah. the relentlessness of war. And 
how you do that. And we're like, here we are again in the OR with more trauma. I run into that often in my work, I guess, A, because it's what I'm interested in and, and B, it's where the research leads me. And so it's a constant struggle for me to be accurate and sort of devastating and yet not so devastating that you put the book down or it's unreadable or, you know, you can't stand it. And um, I'm never quite sure sort of where that line is, because what I tend to do in the first draft, I just write it all. And then I try to, to combine, to cut, to edit, to choose, to, to feel where in the story we need a break. And so, hey, let's go water skiing, you know, let's go to a party, let's go out to dinner, which is, I think, very true as well for what they needed. You know, these people who were living with this and were surrounded by it all the time. And again, it was so important that I make the point that regardless of of what the military calls it or what the newspapers called it, in my opinion, these women were in combat. And it was important for me to make sure that that you understood that. Yeah, I mean, they really, in certain cases, were very much in harm's way, um, right. which I assume all the research there is is absolutely accurate. Tell me about how much your research revealed that the book couldn't contain. You said you had several novels in here, perhaps. Oh. Were, were there great little darlings that you had to cut out research-wise that, that the book just couldn't hold? Well, you know, I was really interested in the POWs coming home, and I would have liked to have really explored that and sort of unpacked that. I would have liked to have done a lot more on on the protest, because one of the things I was trying to handle in this book and to say from a historical standpoint, I guess, and a political standpoint even, is that that protest can be a patriotic act as well, and that protest can make a positive difference. And I really feel that if not for a lot of this, the protest that was going on in the era, you know, the war might have gone on longer and, you know, cost even more lives. So I was trying to I guess, show a fullness of this picture. And yet I I really only had Frankie. I only had my one character to try to show you the totality of the circumstances of an era. And so anything that basically she couldn't feel, understand, think, see, or do in some way had to go. That brings me to the topic of choosing your point of view and finding Uh. Frankie as your vehicle character. I mean, I could envision this as, you know, a novel told from three different perspectives of all the women or a novel told just from Frankie's point of view, but in first person. I could I could see this a lot of ways. And I know those had to be tough choices for you to make as well. So tell me a little bit about that. Well, the the easy answer is. I picked one viewpoint, one woman, because that was the way that I could handle the hugeness and the complexity of this like 15 year period, or I can't remember how much it is, 20 year period. I, you know, I created Barb and Ethel and gave them different backgrounds and different perspectives and different choices. 
to sort of bring in and remind the reader that there were other things going on than just what Frankie was thinking or doing. But the choice was always, it has to be one character because otherwise it's so big that it becomes, you know, a two or three book series. And I didn't want to do that. So I just stuck with the one character and I didn't do first person because that is so that's almost too focused and too insular for me. I really wanted to the story to feel more immediate and more urgent. And I personally think that, you know, that third person gives you a little more latitude in terms of scope than first person does. Yeah. Yeah. And what you were able to do with, so you're mentioning these two, I hate to call them minor characters because they were, yeah. they, they were pretty big characters, but these two women who served alongside Frankie Barb and Ethel and Barb is African-American. And I loved that you could get her experience in there because I think especially the Vietnam war was so hard on the African-American mm -hmm. community. They were so disproportionately disproportionate thank you <laughs> yeah <laughs> thank yeah. you disproportionately impacted by the war and and yet it would feel like a daunting task to take on barb's point of view exclusively right i mean that that would be a, a big jump so yeah I, it was it was great for you to be able to to explore their relationship and their stories as well and i was wondering if you'd just say a few words about barb and ethel and and how you brought them to life well, you know, I didn't realize this actually as I was writing it, but I, I understood it once I read the book sort of in its final form and, and began honing in on what exactly I was saying. Because just as an aside, I think it's, or at least for me, it's often true that I know what I'm saying in the big picture when I begin a book. And I'm very conscious of, you know, what my message is, what my point of view is, what my thoughts are. But it it really is through the creation of these characters and through writing and editing and cutting that I hone in on what the novel actually becomes as opposed to what I intend it to be as I'm writing it. And it was very clear to me, you know, as I got to the later stages, that this book was, in essence, still a big love story. But the love story wasn't between Frankie and a man. It was between Frankie and Barb and Ethel and the sort of soulmate connectedness that these three women had. And I think, especially as I get older, I am often drawn to the, I guess, the celebration of female friendship as as critical and transformative and a kind of salvation for us. And I'm certainly hearing from a lot of people that that this friendship between the three is really kind of the heart and soul of the book. Yeah. And you think about wartime and the relationships that men form with their combat buddies in war. And you would wonder, I mean, the the nature of relationships between men amongst themselves and women amongst themselves are so vastly different. Mm -hmm. And so being able to see how women cope in a men's world with each other, I think was really a, a unique and fun part of this. Right.
We'll be back with more from Kristen Hanna talking about the women in just a moment. You're listening to Writers on Writing. A quick reminder to visit our Patreon page if you are enjoying these behind-the-scenes discussions of how these books get made or you've learned any tips or tricks that have helped you in your own writing life. This is a great way to support the show. Any amount helps us out. You can visit patreon.com slash writers on writing to learn more. And we have opened an affiliate page on bookshop.org for the show. There you can find Kristen's book as well as books from other past guests, books Barbara and I recommend, other writing and craft books. You can find us there, bookshop.org slash shop slash writers on writing. Let's get back to it with Kristen Hanna talking about the women. Talking about bringing that time period to life, because that was such an important part of this. I almost thought that you had a soundtrack. I know. For the book. There's so many, <laughs> so many great songs in here. But yeah, tell me a little bit about, I mean, I know you grew up in that era, so you can remember maybe a lot of the the tab, tab soft drinks being around and some of the other details, but bringing that time period back to life. Tell me a little bit about whether that was came naturally or if there was a lot of research involved in that as well. No, that's, that comes very naturally. That's the fun part. And especially with a book like this, I did the same thing in a book, um, gosh, 15 years ago, Firefly Lane, where the music and the soundtrack and the food um, almost become characters in a way. And it was interesting because I thought when I wrote Firefly Lane, I thought that here was a book that was going to be very specific to women of my generation, because it was about us and it was about what we cared about and you know what mattered to us and our friendships and all of that. And the music was a huge component of that as it had been you know, in my youth and in my um, college days and young motherhood days, I guess. And so I thought that the music would in essence kind of exclude other age groups. And what I found that was really interesting was that these songs, songs like Light My Fire or The Beatles or you know some of these songs, these songs pull in all generations because even if it wasn't your music growing up, it was your mom's and you were listening to it in the car and you heard it at parties and so it's this this through line of the music really cuts through all generational difference, I think. Yeah. Tell me a little bit about some of the sticking points when you were writing. I guess we've mentioned a couple of them. If you had to throw out, you know, <laughs> yeah. hundreds of pages here and there. But I don't know if there were points where you couldn't either understand or relate to choices she was making or something that gave you... Oh, yeah pause to try and push through yeah this the first half of this book was always easy and i mean as as gory and difficult as it was i loved writing about the war i you know that was because it's just such high stakes all the time high drama you know characters are in conflict characters are growing everything is sort of surging forward and for a writer, you know, that's really helpful. Anytime you've got conflict at that level, you know, you stand a pretty good chance. And then suddenly, you know, the war is over and she's home and she's living with parents who don't understand her and who aren't proud of her in a, a country that doesn't value her service. 
She's, you know, suffering from PTSD. She can't get help for it. And in that, that's the section of the book that was very difficult for me to write personally for a couple of reasons. One, because I loved Frankie. Um, she's probably my favorite heroine of all time. And I hated to take her to such dark places and leave her there. You know, I, I like heroines who fight through, who, who kick back, who stand upright, you know. And so that took a while. That was difficult. And then Frankie makes some choices in the these very dark days that are... I mean, to put it kindly, morally questionable. And and I don't tend to write that. You know, I tend to write pretty straight up, morally strong, morally upright individuals. And so to have someone be as broken as Frankie was, especially broken in the way that she was, you know, that that it was her choices and and then society's choices that had had broken her, I found that part very difficult to write. I just wanted her to be well. I guess another question is whether you arrived at any different moral conclusions about things than you started out with. I don't know if the book left you with more empathy or something than, than you began with for people who had gone through this, or if you sort of enjoyed the moral ambiguity in the end. You know, it was really the the thing that was most important to me all the way through and remained important to me was that I was giving what I felt was a realistic account of not just Frankie's service, but of a generation of women. And the thing that was, you know, overwhelmingly true in these memoirs was these women came home, not all of them, of course, but a lot of them came home just extremely traumatized and had a very difficult time sort of getting back on their feet and and finding their way through these, at least the first decade until the war was over and sort of the country had moved on. And even then, they felt left behind. And it was just really important to me, knowing that they are still out there, that they're still alive, that they can read this book. I wanted them to be able to read this book and say, you know, either this was very like me or this wasn't like me, but I knew who this woman was. And and then to be able, hopefully, to talk to perhaps their families and their communities about their story in a way that they maybe hadn't felt comfortable doing before. We should mention, if we haven't, that Frankie grew up in a very affluent, uh, my Southern California neighbors will know the neighborhood she grew up, she grew up in Coronado Island. And uh, her parents were socialites. And, you know, it was very important how the family looked and their social standing. And so I think that's another good lesson for writers of turning up the heat and turning up the heat and putting your characters in these situations of moral complexity. You know, her background was so at odds with the choices she made when she got home. And, you know, it was really a driving force of 
driving her family apart. If you can say anything about deciding Frankie's background and, and backstory to to make this all the more painful for her. Well, you know, and I've I've said this a couple of times, but in the last, I don't know, I guess it's been 10 years now, but the two shows that probably impacted my writing more than anything else were Game of Thrones and Breaking Bad. And watching these shows, you know, sort of on a weekly basis and and actually seeing the whole concept of make it worse, amp up the stakes, you know, the whole we used to say, you know, put your heroine in a tree and make her climb up higher and higher, however it is you want to think about it. The truth is that if the if the water is just getting hotter and hotter and more and more bad things are happening, what that does is, like in life, adversity reveals character. And so that is how you can create these people that are so, I think, beloved and understood is here you take, you know, 20-year-old Frankie who you know, who dresses the way she's supposed to, who's gone to a private Catholic girl's school, who's never stepped out of line, who lives to make her parents and her community proud, who can't imagine living in a world where she wouldn't do that. And then she goes off to war and everything that she had been taught to care about and to believe in is stripped away. And she has to then figure out who she is. And that is sort of the the arc of the second half of the book. And what I love so much about it is she is a woman who fights to the death to, to do the right thing. And, and she fails. And when she fails, it just takes away a piece of her soul every time. And she has to fight to reclaim that. And, and when she does, I mean, I think that's why endings matter so much. You know, if you've spent the 400 pages living through Frankie fighting for her soul, um, and then you see her stand on her own and find her voice and say to her parents, your life isn't what I want. And, you know, maybe I won't have the white picket fence and the children and the husband that I had planned on. But what I have is this. I have me. And and then she turns and tries to help women who are on that same journey. And I just find that whole arc to be beautiful and worthwhile. So you mentioned having readers for it. I was wondering if you had, I don't know if you'd call them sensitivity readers. You obviously had readers who had been over there so they could read it for accuracy. Tell me about the different types of readers and the different categories that they fill to kind of sign off on a novel like this. So, I mean, I have my my girlfriend, Megan Chance. We've been um, critique partners for 20 years. We're always, you know, each other's first readers. I have a couple of girlfriends who read for very different things. I have a very sort of literary reader who reads, and I have a very commercial reader who reads. 
And, you know, so I, I take information from them. I'm very collaborative. I want to get all the information possible. Uh, and then I give to my editor and she reads and, you know, and we kind of build it from there. I know it's a big thing in the industry to do sensitivity readers right now. I sort of, you know, predate all of that. And so I pretty much just work with my editor at the moment. But if I if I felt uncertain about something, I would, you know, not hesitate to reach out to whoever I felt I needed to hear from. Yeah. Here's a nerdy writing question, but I recently heard the great advice that you should give each character three physical description traits and no more because your readers will then kind of lose the thread of what they oh. look like and no less because then they don't know what they look like. And so I was kind of reading this with that in mind and you you sort of adhered to that rule that I could, you know, I, I kind of saw the vague outlines of, of what these characters look like, but it wasn't overwhelming. And of course, we get a lot through their dress and, you know, you can right. convey social standing through what they're wearing and Frankie's hair went wild while she was over in Vietnam yeah. and all that kind of stuff. But in terms of character descriptions and kind of getting across who these people are, you know, we got some great descriptions of Frankie's parents and what they were wearing, social status. I don't know if you have sort of generalized rules that you follow in that regard of of describing your characters and keeping them straight in our heads. I don't actually, and I need to because one of the things that at least I find interesting about about this whole journey of writing is I really don't know what they look like because I don't care. And so in the because I'm only interested in what they think and what they feel and how they act and what they say. And so I I have a continual problem in the whole first draft where someone like Frankie will be blonde one moment and black haired the next and brown eyes and blue eyes. And, and my, my, you know, my friend Megan always says, you should just find a picture of someone and just, you know, put it next to the computer and do that. And I just can't seem, I can't seem to do that. So what happens is when it gets to the very last draft, basically, then I really pretty much decide what everybody looks like. And you know, I make sure they're like for this book, the hair is huge. You know, is it bouffant? Is it long and parted? You know, it's all much more a cultural reference than it is a character reference. Right. It's so funny you say that because as we're talking about how many of these books have been made into movies and TV shows, this one is already going to screen. I was wondering if that a kind of messes with your head as you're writing it, that you're like, well, this is destined to be on a screen, so I better know what it looks like. <laughs> or, well, uh, yeah, no. go ahead. <laughs> well, because no. <laughs> one of the things I've learned in the film business, it's really very little about does this actress or actor match what's in the book? It's very much about, you know, Hollywood's a business. Who can we get cast? Who will, you know, get people to see it? How will it get made? And so even things like age can be incredibly fluid. So um, no, I don't really think much about the the adaptation process. That's just like winning the lottery or getting struck by lightning. More winning the lottery than getting struck by yeah. lightning. <laughs> <laughs> it depends, I think. But 
So in terms of hanging that picture by your computer, as your as your reader suggested, I always love to talk to writers about what their office looks like. And I always say office is, is a very fluid word. I mean, it could be what your computer looks like or what your what your brain looks like, but just how you organize the material, how you keep the timeline straight. The timeline in this uh, really had to be very tight for a lot of reasons, but you know, you, you really had to stay on that. Uh, the research had to be very tight. The places they were stationed and and where they came when they got home had to be tight. I mean, a lot. There were a lot of moving parts. Yeah, and a lot of characters. And so I'm I'm always interested in how writers keep all that straight and organize themselves. Uh, the timeline just kicks my butt every time. I'd like to say it's because I I cut and paste and change and move and throw away so much that a lot of the times I'll move a scene, you know, from one part of the book to the other part and I won't actually change it and it'll be winter suddenly in the middle of summer or she'll be 10 years younger than she should be. So I have a lot of those kinds um, of issues. But what I actually do and what I've discovered works for me in terms of writing the, the historical section of this is I do all the research and I... I sort of yellow highlight everything in any book that interests me. I take all of those paragraphs or pages or whatever. I put them in a document titled, you know, Healing Wounds by Diane Evans Carlson, Diane Carlson Evans. And I write them all out and put them in a notebook. So I'll have this, uh, this book had four notebooks with probably 200 books that are annotated within that. And then I take each of those sections and I look at the most important pieces that feel like scenes or feel like moments of character change or something particularly relevant. And I put those on note cards. And then I take those note cards and I try to organize them in order of escalating conflict. And then that sort of becomes the spine for what that section of the book will be. Interesting. Okay. And are you using just a Word document and keeping everything in the same Word document and moving things around or using like a Scrivener or something like that? I write longhand. Oh, my God. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm irrelevant to everyone. No, I hear so many <laughs> writers writing. No, I mean, that that really is becoming a theme on the show is how is many it? writers write longhand. You know what? And There's no delete key. Yeah, right. You don't lose a thing. Yeah, that's right. Well, it's just the 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 perfectionist is a little bit silenced by not being able to just go that blows and get rid of it. You know, yeah. so I just am constantly moving forward. And then I decide if it's bad days later. And sometimes I'm a little kinder to myself days later than I am in the moment. Okay. And when you say, because there's a nice acknowledgement section in here where we can see some of the research that you did, but I know it's it's obviously not comprehensive of how much yeah. research you did. So you, you, you're mentioning 200 books. Is that, Probably that's, so. Yeah. Okay. But these are, I, I really, the really core ones that if someone, you know, came up to me and said, hey, I'd really like to learn more about the nurses or the era. These are the, I think, 10 or 12 books that I would recommend. 
Right. But in terms of reading 200 books, is there kind of a sense that you get when your research is complete, when you've done enough to wrap your mind around? I usually, I mean, you're constantly afraid that the one book that really undermines everything you've learned, you haven't found. Somehow you haven't stumbled across it. So there's always that fear. But when I get to the point where I've read, say, four or five or six books on a subject, and I haven't really found anything new, that's when I say to myself, okay, now it's time to leave the beautifully protected world of research and actually begin the difficult, arduous road of writing a novel. <laughs> Fair. Well, this is fantastic. I'm trying to think of other writing advice. I mean, you're 20 many novels in. I think you're way beyond 20 novels now. And um, I'm wondering sort of over the course of all of these, sort of the 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 rules that you adhere to when approaching a book and, and maybe the ones that have not served you well. You know, I would say, I mean, there's so much advice. No advice is better than the two-pronged read everything and write and don't stop writing. I mean, those are the big two, you know, everyone wants to write a book. At some point you have to sit down and actually write the book and then you need to keep writing. And when that book doesn't work, you need to write the next book and the next book, you know, so there's, there's all of that, this, the, the durability that you just have to acquire and the, the discipline and the dedication you have to show on sort of a daily basis but I guess I would also say, you know, there's all these rules about what you can write, what you can't write, when you can write, what the settings are, viewpoint rules, narrative rules, you know, everyone's got something to tell you. And I think that I would say that it's really important, first of all, to learn the rules, to exhibit the dedication that it comes from internalizing and following the rules and learn how to write. Um, for example, you know, one of the great rules is about viewpoint, you know, don't be shifting around right in one viewpoint and per scene sort of thing or whatever. And, and learn what you're doing and then figure out which of those rules do not serve you well and, and break them then. Yeah. You've been with St. Martin's. Have you been with St. Martin's all the way through? No, I did, um, I think, 18 years over at Random House. Oh, got it. Have you been with the same agent all the way through? I had one previous agent, So, okay. I, but I've been with my current agent since uh, 1994. Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah, so a long time. So that's a long time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Yeah, I'm always curious about writers' experiences with big houses versus, I mean, St. Martin's is also a big house, but any experiences that you have with, and I don't know if you give mm. out advice to writers about small presses versus big houses and the advantages and disadvantages. You know, I wish I knew more about self-publishing and small presses and all of that. You know, I'm just too old for all of that. You know, <laughs> I, I came of age when there you couldn't do that. You had to like sell to a major house and random house was very corporate and big. And St. Martin's has a very scrappy independent 
fun kind of feel. But I think what's most important, and, and if I were to give some kind of publishing type advice, it would be, you know, somehow you have to balance giving a publisher a chance to do well while not staying at the party too long if it's not working. Hmm. And, you know, I mean, that's something that everybody has to decide for themselves. I'm a big believer in agents because I think it's just hard to maneuver through these waters at the traditional publishers without an agent. And I believe very strongly in making sure that you are always the captain of the ship. So ultimately, you write what you choose to write, you title it, you package it, you promote it in the ways that you feel it needs to be done so that if it fails, it's on you. And if it succeeds, it's on you. Yeah. You had mentioned after The Great Alone, deviating from historical fiction and writing a domestic thriller, you were experimenting with that. And I didn't know if there's pressure on you since you're so known for historical fiction now and so successful in it, that you're either your agent or your editor is very married to the idea that you stay in the historical fiction realm, or if you feel like you have the latitude to explore different territory, if you wish. I would say that I feel and they feel that I can write what I want. Uh, with the caveat, like I just said, that the buck stops with me. So, you know, if I decide, hey, I'm going to write a fantasy novel, they'll publish it. I can do it. It better be a really great fantasy novel because I'm going to have to sort of reinvent myself. But anyone who's read me for very long knows that I reinvent myself with a fair amount of regularity. And I'm kind of feeling that moment, too, at right now. So I have no idea what's next. That's great. Well, I should mention that uh, for our Southern California listeners, you're going to be appearing so soon, right after the publication of the book, I think. Yeah, February February 5th. Yep. Yeah, at Seegerstrom in our own neck of the woods. And, uh, and you've got a robust book tour planned, so you're going to be sort of all over. But I'll direct people to your website, which is, I think, just your name, Kristen Hanna. Yeah, yeah. Kristen Hanna. And then um, they can follow me on Instagram or Facebook, and I've got news coming out there as well. And there's going to be a lot of news. I know the minute this <laughs> this book hits the the stands, there's going to be a lot of news coming out yes. about it. So this is wonderful. <laughs> I hope so. Oh, I'm sure. Kristen Hanna, this was such a pleasure. Thank you so much for taking the time. It was so nice. Nice to talk to you again. And I can't wait to be in Costa Mesa and see the blue sky. Very exciting. Me too. <laughs> <laughs> That was Kristen Hanna. The book is The Women. It's out and available on February 6th, published by St. Martin's Press. In addition to our Patreon page, you can always visit our websites, barbersispenonfire.com, mine is mariestone.com, two R's and Marie, or the show's website, writersonwriting.com. There you can find archives of all of our past shows, as well as more information. You can always subscribe to the podcast on Apple, Amazon, Spotify, Stitcher, however you consume your podcasts. As always, our fantastic music and sound editing was provided by Travis Barrett. You can find more of his music on Spotify under Just My Type. That's all of what time we have for today. Tune in next week. Thanks for joining me. Have a great day.